0: Well, kind of like Pastor Matt said, it's not good to brag in church, and especially in public speaking, whenever you brag about something, uh, people don't really like it. It's better to do kind of uh, humor against yourself. But I've got to tell you guys about something I'm a part of, and it's been about 15 years. It's a special club that gives me unique advantages, um, that helps my family out, And this club is so valuable. I carry a card that indicates I'm part of this club. I've actually carried this card all around the world. And if you can handle it, I'm going to show it to you right now. Kroger Plus card. About, I guess it's 15 years ago, I've lost track of the date. I was in Kroger and they told me about this incredible new program, Kroger Plus Card. If I simply gave them my address and I gave them my phone number and my email, I would get special sales, special discounts on the food. And I remember that particular day, I was kind of pumped about this. I was excited. I thought, this is awesome. I go to Kroger a lot. I like Kroger for other reasons. And I'm going to have this special card. Even got one of the little, little plastic cards. to put it on my key ring, which that's sacred space. Nothing goes there usually. And I thought, this is incredible. And then this incredible voice comes over and says, thank you, valued customer. I just warmed my heart. I thought, this feels so great. Then I discovered there wasn't much special about that. Because before the Kroger Plus card, for those of you who need a history lesson, all the sales used to get just for showing up in the store. Now with the special card, they track exactly what you buy, when you buy it, and they think, make you think that you're getting a deal, but it's actually the deal you would have got anyway. Early on, I won't lie to you, I felt privileged, I felt unique, I felt special, but when I found out all of you have the same card too, hey, it's not really that big of a deal, is it? And that's kind of human nature. Human nature, when we feel like we're chosen and special and unique and we have an advantage others don't have, we can't help but to be a little prideful. Then when we discover that what we have, anyone can have, our flesh doesn't value it quite as much. Now there's a breakdown in every metaphor, but I want to talk to you a little bit about salvation. And we're in the Easter season right now. The title of this message today is The Future Kingdom. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 7 here in a couple of minutes. But often, often we take pride in our salvation and we belittle or look down upon those who have not heard the name of Jesus or have not accepted the name of Jesus. And we wrongly sometimes believe in our chosenness that We're part of this exclusive club that makes us better than everyone else instead of humbly thanking God for our salvation, humbly thanking God for what he's done for us. When I was in late junior high, early high school, I got real serious about God. And I've always been accused of being an old man stuck in a young man's body. Now that my body's getting older, I'm starting to catch up with that now. And I was a pretty disciplined kid. I had a couple of youth pastors who, who really um, directed my life and, and really gave me instruction to eliminate certain things in my life that are not even biblical, but they just were helpful in forming holiness in my life. And I thank God for that. That, that helped me a lot. Kept me out of trouble. But an unintended consequence is this, is I developed a kind of pride in my life. And the pride was, I'm part of this elitist crowd, this elitist group who understands the ways of God and understands um, the higher way to live. And I didn't really understand or realize I was doing this at the time, but I began to have kind of an arrogant, smug attitude towards those who didn't know God. And almost, I hate to even tell you this, it's embarrassing, almost um, gloated in the fact that judgment was coming their way. I was like, yeah, all those other all those other kids in high school that are partying and this is, wait till they get what 's coming their way. And this was kind of an attitude that developed, and then it it definitely expanded into culture also <laughs> the rest of culture they 're going to get what they what they deserve they 're going to get there someday. The problem with that is that type of perspective kept me from seeing my own sinfulness and that Type of perspective kept me from being humble enough to live under the grace of God. And that's why today's message, I know I'm taking a while to get to the scripture, but I have a lot of disclaimers. Today's message is one of the most hopeful scriptures that I see in the Bible. I'm going to share with you a hopeful scripture for humanity. I'm going to share with you a scripture today that exalts Christ, makes Christ huge. And I want to be clear about that, that if Jesus is who he says he is, then he has to be the only path to God. There's not other paths to God. If, if there's other paths, if we're just taking any path we want to, some Jesus, some Mohammed, you know, some um, Buddha, so on and so forth, and they all lead to one God, if that is, is what we believe, then Jesus is a liar. Because Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one goes to the Father but through me. Jesus claimed a supremacy. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of gods. He's set apart. So this scripture today is going to exalt Jesus to the place where he's supposed to be. It's going to show Jesus for who he truly is. This scripture today is going to point to a great move of God. God. A great move of God, a great unfolding of salvation for the nations. And the scripture today gives me tremendous optimism for what God is doing in the world today and what God will do in the world today and what we have a chance to see and what we have a chance to cooperate in. Now, let me give you disclaimers, more disclaimers. As someone who's going to share with you an optimistic hopeful message today. I'm aware that as a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that I do not want to present an easy Jesus. I do not want to present what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. I'm aware today that I will do no one any good or help anyone if I present some type of watered down, weak gospel that appeals to our fleshly desires, but doesn't cause us to repent. I'm aware of that today. I'm very mindful, God forbid, that I be that person. God forbid that I cheapen the grace of God. God forbid that I diminish who Jesus is. But I want to open your mind to the possibility that the kingdom of God is bigger in our future than we can even imagine or think. That God may be up to something huge and we have a chance according to the scripture to see a great work now jesus before we get to this today's scripture i'm thinking of some of the things jesus said jesus primarily spoke to a religious elite group a group who felt like they had it all figured out this particular group of jewish people felt like they had god's special revelation and they did and they were God's special chosen ones, and they were. But they took this sense of chosenness, and instead of it preparing them for Jesus, it caused them to live in self righteousness. And they were completely reliant upon the law, they were completely reliant on rules, they were completely reliant on their own morality to give them access to heaven. So, Jesus, many of the things Jesus said in the Gospels deconstructed that thought. Jesus challenged them. He would say things like this, narrow is the road to salvation and few find it. When the rich young ruler asked Jesus, what must I do to be saved? Jesus said several things, but he essentially said this, salvation is impossible with man. Then he said, but with God, all things are possible. Jesus said that many would come to him and he was specifically talking about false prophets and they would say to him, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? We cast out demons. Lord, we performed great ministry. We did all this great stuff in your name. And Jesus said, I'm gonna tell those people, depart from me. I never knew you. Jesus was clear that to follow him, one must take up his or her cross daily. It wasn't about raising your hand one time at the end of the sermon or walking the aisle or filling out a car. It's about every day taking up your cross to serve Jesus. See, the gospel message, Jesus challenged people to the core of the religion. Yet, as he spoke against this religious, self-righteous, haughty, self-reliant way of attaining salvation what did Jesus do for the outcast? What did Jesus do for the marginalized? He went to the lepers, the outcasts, the untouchable, and he touched them. He ate with the tax collectors who could be equated today as those who take advantage of the poor in financial realms or through systems that take advantage of of those who are economically challenged. He went and he befriended ex-prost, or, or current prostitutes and allowed women to come be part of his ministry and allowed women to travel with him and gave them a place in his kingdom. Jesus did all of these things because Jesus' love and grace was reaching out to people who needed him. And so it is today when I talk about the future kingdom, what do I talk about? I talk about the kingdom of God. About this time last year, I did some sermons on the kingdom of God. And as a quick reminder, the kingdom of God is simply this, the rule of God. Whenever Jesus is in charge, that's the kingdom of God. He didn't come to start a military revolution. He didn't start, come to start a political revolution. Jesus came to start a God revolution. And wherever Jesus is in charge, that's the kingdom of God. I hope the kingdom of God starts right here. Hope the kingdom of God starts in my heart. And once the kingdom of God starts in my heart, I hope the kingdom of God is in my family. Hope the kingdom of God is in my church, that God is really in charge of this church, of our church. When I say it's my church, it's not my church, it's our church. That The kingdom of God is in charge here. And the thought that the kingdom of God, the rule of God is in our city, our schools, our education, is in our nation, even the world itself, that's the kingdom of God. As in heaven be it on earth. So we talk about this kingdom of God and what it is and this future kingdom. And here's my first observation before we get to today's text. There's many people for the kingdom. If you're taking notes, you can fill in the blanks. This is the scripture that gives me such great hope, such great optimism. This is a scripture that helps me look into our future here on earth and anticipate revival, renewal, a move of God, salvation coming to the masses, salvation coming to the Jewish people, salvation coming to the nations, salvation coming to all people that accepts Jesus Christ as Lord and King. Revelation chapter seven, verse nine. All right, here's a verse. After this, I looked and there was a vast multitude From every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were robed in white with palm branches in their hands. Let's just stay on that slide for a second. Here's this idea that Revelation chapter 7 is talking about what will come, what will come to pass. John is looking, the Holy Spirit is speaking through John and he's looking into the future. This which has not taken place yet. And before the throne of God, this idea, this truth, this revelation is what it is. That there's going to be representation from every ethnic group, every tribe, every people, that God is going to move beyond just one ethnic group. It's not just for the Jewish people, it's for all people. It's for all people. He has chosen all people. It's not just a Eurocentric gospel, which is just for the Western church and just for uh, the church in America. God is for Central America. God is for South America. God is for Africa. God is for the Arabs in the Middle East. God is for the 1.2 billion, not billion, billion people in India. God is for the almost 2 billion people in China. And on and on and on, God has a plan for the whole world. This, this is why we evangelize. This is why we go. This is, this is why we believe that instead of being part of this exclusive club that makes us feel good, like, I'm so glad I'm saved. The rest of the five and a half billion people on the planet, I guess they're just going to have to go to hell. No, instead of having that attitude, we say, this is for everyone. Jesus is for everyone. Jesus is for the whole world. And Jesus is not only for the whole world, he has a plan for the whole world. And so now we look at this scripture and this doesn't feel particularly exciting. They were robed in white. Palm branches in their hands. Well, let's look at the symbolic language of that, and, and we know this: that so much of Revelation is a metaphor, and that's why we're not quite sure what it means. All places we can, we can infer and guess and and discuss, but we know this: is that uh, palm branches is is used to welcome the king, to welcome the ruler. That's what happened on Palm Sunday, but there's actually much historical context for military generals entering a city and palm branches being waved. And this idea of, hey, the whole world is going to welcome, we're welcoming the reign of Jesus. We're welcoming the rulership of Jesus. He's in charge. Because why? It's because many people will be in his kingdom. In verse 10, they said this, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God. Salvation is such a wonderful word. In essence, it means this, victory. Victory belongs to our God. Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus. If you don't know that, that's a a name for Jesus. He is the Lamb. The Lamb who voluntarily sacrificed his life as a substitute to reconcile us to God. And all the angels stood around the throne. The elders and the four living creatures, and moving on in the narrative, it says, "Do we have anything else there?" And and, well, actually, that's not your fault. That's where I wanted to stop at this part. We'll go to the rest of the scripture. So here's the important part. The, the, The important part is this: is that who is in the middle? Who is in the center? Jesus is in the center. You might say, well, who are the 24 elders? Well, is it the church or is it the tribe of Israel? I don't know. We could debate. We could have a coffee and figure out who, who they are and what are the creatures and what are they doing and who are the angels. All that's interesting. All that's good. God may give us more revelation, but here's the thing that really matters it's who is in the middle and who is in the center. Jesus is in the, is in the center. He's the one that everything revolves around. And this is the idea that redeeming the nations, redeeming the ethnic groups, redeeming all people is, happens when Jesus is in the center, when Jesus is in the middle. And when we begin to put him in the center of everything we have and everything we are, then we are, are foreshadowing what's going to happen in heaven. We are declaring, as in heaven, here on earth, Jesus is right in the middle. He's on the throne. He's the center of our attention. He is the the, um, focus that we have. He is the one by which everything revolves around. Now, here's a second observation from the scripture. Yes, there are many, many people in the kingdom, but one of the reasons for this is there's great sacrifice for the kingdom. Great sacrifice for the kingdom. Look with me at verse 13. Verse 13 says, And one of the elders asked me, Who are these people robed in white? And where do they come from? Here's a curious response. I said to him, Sir, you know, Isn't that funny how God asks us questions and he knows the answer. He just wants us to think about it. And then he told me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is a powerful statement because this doesn't even make sense, right? I mean, know that if you ever get something stained in blood, it's so difficult to get it out. But here, the blood of Jesus, which means this, the atonement of Jesus, the substitute of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, is that which purifies us. That which the world says is the end is the beginning. Death, which seems like it's the final through Jesus, it's the beginning because his death isn't final because on the third day, he came with the keys to death, Hades, and the grave. And so his death was not a place of defeat. His death was a place of salvation or victory. And this is clearly stating once again, as the scripture has all through the Old Testament all through the, the gospel, all, all through the New Testament letters, all pointing to the work of Jesus on the cross, that Jesus is it. He is it. There's only one way to be pure. There's only one way to be holy. There's only one way to be qualified. There's only one way to have access to the throne of God and to be able to stand there. And that's through what Jesus did on the cross and what he proves of the resurrection. So there it is. And I love this. And they serve him day and night in the sanctuary. The priesthood of the believer. We don't have to go through a church. We don't. And thank God for churches. I work for a church. So I'm really thankful for a church. Um, we don't have to go through a priest. Um, I'm glad to be a pastor, but you don't have to go through me to get to God. Day and night, day and night to the throne of God is available. Anytime you call upon the name of the Lord, he's there. Any place you call upon the name of the Lord, he's there. In your darkest place, in your place of victory, he is there. Day and night, day and night, they're praising and worshiping this God. It's an incredible thought to know that even when we're not praising God, even when we're not consciously worshiping God, you know that there is worship happening at the throne of God 24 hours, 7 days a week. There's no day off. There's no time off. That God is getting praise all the time. Because he is at that position where he is worthy of praise. And so whenever we begin to praise and worship, whenever we begin to uh, seek the Lord, when we begin to apply the principles of worship, we're joining the throne room of God. We're joining what's happening in heaven. It's an incredible thought, isn't it? That we get access to that through our praise and worship. And so it says this, verse 15. For this reason they are before the throne of God. They serve him night and night and day in the sanctuary. Now, what is the great tribulation? Is a great tribulation uh, seven years of intense tribulation before the second coming of the Lord? Yes, it is. But I also believe beyond that, it is all that's happened to Christians from the point of Jesus' ascension until this very day. Tribulation, when the Bible talks about tribulation, is talking about what non-Christians do to Christians. Non-Christians persecuting Christians for the gospel. Non-Christians persecuting Christians because of their belief in Jesus and their stance in Jesus. In this particular passage today... We're talking about a great move of God that's coming to this earth. We're already part of it. We're seeing it in measure. There's a great revival in South America. There's a great revival in West Africa. I know that our church, excuse me, our nation is turning their back on the Lord, but sometimes all we can see is us. I'm gonna tell you, the gospel is moving in China. The gospel is moving in India. Basically, the gospel is moving in the southern part, the southern hemisphere of our globe. And I pray that the gospel... And revival comes to our nation too, right? Amen. And you're going to see we need it. And that's what God wants. God wants this to happen. And so this great tribulation, one of the reasons there's going to be a great move of God is because people are laying down their lives for the gospel. And when we begin um, to think about the great tribulation, um, there's a couple of ways. We always think in a future tense, and there's definitely merit to that. Or we begin to think, as I say today, well, what about the tribulation that's happened to the saints up to this point? What about uh, Nero, who used to burn Christians? He was a Roman emperor, and in about the second or third century, he would burn Christians at the stake, uh, and he would use that to light the streets of of Rome, so legend says. Uh, What about the Colosseums, where Christians uh, for sport were released into the Colosseum, and lions destroyed them? It's that, this is a side note, and some of you need to hear this, this is why we need to be careful not to be entertained by violence. Because if you let violence entertain you, innocent people always get hurt. So be be careful about that. We go on and we see that all through, all through the history of the church, there's been persecution. Sometimes it's come outside of the faith, sometimes within the faith. Catholics and Protestants have fought against each other. They persecuted one another. And the purity of the gospel, wherever the gospel's been pure, pure um, at some point, you could probably argue some point on the globe, there's been an intense tribulation happening. Non-Christians, when, when, you know, when I said earlier Christians on Christians, well, how many know that's unsaved people? They call themselves Christians, but they're not saved. And this idea of this tribulation and this persecution coming, And we immediately say, well, that's in the future or that's in the past. But church, I want you to realize that's happening right now today with increased intensity. I looked up some statistics this week from a credible source. This is from the Catholic News Agency. And in 2013, 2,100 Christians were known to Be killed for faith related reasons. But last year in 2015, think about this 7,100 Christians were killed for faith related reasons. That's a triple from 2013 to 2015. There's there's a great tribulation happening for, for those in North Korea, for those in Afghanistan, for those in Syria, for those in Pakistan, for those in Somalia, for those in Sudan, for those in Iran, for those in Libya. For those in Iraq, you tell me that the great tribulation isn't happening to them when they're being beheaded, they're being crucified, their daughters are being raped. If not raped, they're being put into the sex slave trade. You tell me the great tribulation is just something in the future. Or the tribulation of Christians is just something we read about in the history books. No, it's happening right now as we speak. And one of the reasons a great move of God is coming to this planet is because we have brothers and sisters who will lay down their lives and will not, will not give up on the name of Jesus in the face of persecution. Would I be beheaded for Jesus? I don't know. I don't know. Would I let my house be burned for Jesus? I don't know. I hope so. But thank God we haven't had to face that. And and I'm not a Masochists are saying, oh, well, we just need that to happen. I think we need to make good decisions and so that uh, we can live a quiet and godly life here on earth and we need to have good policy and good decisions so persecution doesn't come to our nation. And we need to be aware of those things. But the point is this, is when we read Revelation chapter 7 about the martyrs, it's not something just in the past and just in the future. It's something that's happening right now. So it is that here we are, we think we're persecuted because we can't sleep late on Sunday mornings. We think we're persecuted because our kid doesn't have fun at church. We think we're persecuted because, well, you know, we can't get out on the lake fast enough uh, during the summer because we're obligated to go to church. And we call that suffering for the gospel. You see, in light of this scripture and in light of what's happening today in 2016, I'm going to tell you, we're a bunch of spiritual pansies. We're a bunch of weaklings. And our attitude about the things of God and the house of God is not appropriate in comparison to what brothers and sisters have gone through historically and what they are going through right now as we speak. It's nonsense. So we have the situation in Iraq where 1,100 Christians are known to have been murdered by a terrorist group called ISIL. There have been 125 Christian churches or schools or monasteries destroyed. Both Christians and Yazidi women and girls have been for sale. Well, you say, well, what's the difference? Well, to me, there's not because I care about all people who are victims of genocide, whether they're Christian or not. But why why do we emphasize Christians? And here's the reason why. We don't emphasize them because they're more important than the Yazidis or any other unprotected group. Here's the deal. The Bible's very clear. If we can't care about our brothers and sisters in our own family, how do we care about those outside of God's family? So it's not that we care more about Christian persecution than we do any other unprotected group. It's that if we don't care about the brothers and sisters who are in our family, how are we going to care for those not in our family? And so that's why we're concerned about these things. So 1,100 Christians in northern Iraq, basically in southern Syria, and what's what's known as Kurdistan, which is an unofficial land, 125 churches destroyed. And uh, our administration would not acknowledge this as genocide, Secretary Kerry would not do so. There's a systematic eradication of Christianity. Christianity has always been a minority in the Middle East, but it has a 2,000-year history. And ISIL, or ISIS, or whatever you want to call it, I call it demonic-inspired genocide, is trying to eradicate Christianity. And many groups, like the European Union... Pope Francis, the United United Nations Commission on Human Rights, genocide scholars from around the world have called the present-day eradication of Christians, Yazidi, and other religious minorities under ISIS as genocide, but the United States had not until, this is good news, on March 14th of this year, 2016, Congress passed a historic unanimous 393 yeses to zero no's vote. It was House Resolution 75 recognizing the ongoing genocide of Christians, Yazidis, and other religious minorities under ISIS. What that does, it gives historical record. Whether, and, and I'm not here to give an opinion in this setting, whether or not military action should happen, but I do believe an acknowledgement should have happened, and it took a few more weeks for the administration to... Two more weeks for them to acknowledge it. Too, uh, an acknowledgement should happen, because then we can't say historically, "Oh, we didn't know." Like what happened in Turkey a hundred years ago, what happened in Rwanda in 1994. We can't say, "Oh, well, we really didn't know as a government. We didn't really know what was going on." Now we say, "Hey, we know, and we're responsible," and the knowledge is in our minds. I say all of this now, getting back to the heart of the matter. These are our brothers and sisters. Okay, they may not worship like us. They, they may have some theological nuances that are a little bit different. Man, but they're part of our family. And then, even those who don't know Christ, they're part of the human family too. And Jesus loves them equally, just as much as he loves us in this room. And he cares about it. So next time you want to wimp out on God, think about some people on the other side of the world and just toughen up. Do what you're supposed to do for God. Let's quit whining about these trivial things that keep us from being everything God wants us to be. And you can fill in the blanks what those things are for you. Here's the great news as we come to a closing. There's eternal life in the kingdom. That's what's beautiful about this passage. Look at verse 16. Oh, these words are so beautiful. Verse 16 says this. There will no they, and it's talking specifically about these people who were persecuted and us too. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any heat. For the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God, this is a beautiful phrase, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is what our God will do. This idea that God is coming. And when those who were hungry, hungry because of the name of Jesus, they won't hunger anymore because we know this is that true fulfillment is a bread of life. Those who have thirsted in the name of Jesus, we know that they'll never thirst again. There's a well within us. By the Holy Spirit, a perpetual well that brings life, and that there is going to be a time where there's no more dry places, no more arid places. This scripture parallels the Jewish people, who we call the Jewish people now. and their years in the wilderness where bread was not plentiful, when water sources weren't plentiful, and then they came into the promised land. This is a metaphor for us too. This is a foreshadowing of what God's saying too. We may be in a land that's dry. We may be in a land where there's no water, but we won't be hungry forever. We won't be thirsty forever, because when Jesus brings his eternal life, and how many know eternal life starts here? It starts here when we know him, that he comes and he satisfies us, those longings, those appetites that we need his satisfaction and we need who he is. Why does this happen? No more, no more. Uh, the sun will not strike them. There won't be any heat. Here's the reason why verse 17 for the lamb who's at the center of the throne will shepherd them. How many know that our, our culture right now is crying out for good leadership, whether it's, it's from the right side of the political or aisle or the left side, it's, it's, Our culture is like crying out for leadership in the corporate world, uh, for equitable leadership, uh, for good, godly leadership in education. Our country is just crying out for that. And what they're crying out for is Jesus himself. This need for great leadership is pointing people to the rule and reign of Jesus because he is the only one who's never corrupt. He's the only one who will never deceive. He's the only one, Jesus, that you'll never find a wrong intention. He's the only one who is full of truth. He's the only one who is stable. He is the only one who will not disappoint. He's the only one who cannot be bought. He's the only one who does not have a hidden agenda. Jesus is the only leader that we can truly count on. And if we have a man or woman who reflect Jesus, they'll get a a little closer, won't they? But even then, then they'll disappoint. We've never had a leader in any field, in any church, in, in the White House, in any, any um, a governor's mansion who hasn't disappointed at some level. It's true. There's never been a leader that hasn't disappointed at some level, but the more our leaders reflect Jesus in the corporate world, the more our leaders reflect Jesus in education, the more we see he's the example, then the greater our society will be. And we need to look beyond. You need to look beyond your religious leaders. You need to look beyond your political leaders. You need to look beyond any type of leader that you're relying on and look to the leader who will not let you down. Because I tell you where Jesus is, he's... Right now, today, as I speak, he's at the same place he was before the birth of America. He was at the same place he was in the dark ages. He was at the same place that he was as soon as as he ascended to heaven. He's at the throne of God, right in the middle of it all. He's stable. He's at the center. He's unshakable. He's unmovable. He's reliable. You can count on our God. He's not gonna let you down. That's why he's in the middle. I want you to, let's stand together. And I want to read this entire passage to you again. And I'm going to read it to you as life to your spirit. This is the word of God. This is what will happen. It will come to pass. We we may not know all the particulars, but we know the central theme. This This is what will come to pass because of Jesus. Revelation 7, 9. And after this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation. "'Tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, "'standing before the throne and before the Lamb. "'And they were robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. "'And they they cried out in a loud voice, "'Salvation! belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, amen, blessed and glory, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, who are these people robed in white and where did they come from? I said to him, sir, you know. Then he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in the sanctuary. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. No longer will they hunger. No longer will they thirst. No longer will the sun strike them or any heat because the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord for you. Amen. I love the closing of that. God's going to come. He's going to wipe away every tear from your eye. This is what he does. He wipes away grief. He wipes away regret wipes away all the things that causes our emotions to overflow sometimes our eyes just express what our words can our emotions god's gonna reach down in tenderness as the father and wipe those tears away i'm gonna ask our, our prayer partners go towards the back and if you need to be saved today i want you to come talk to me talk to one of our prayer partners in the, uh, that back area and if you do not know if you're going to heaven today You need to settle this issue right now. God wants you to settle this. Salvation is only through him. It's not through your morality. It's not through good works. It's only through Jesus. And you need to go pray with someone. It may not be a salvation issue, but if you need God to work in your life, I want you to find a prayer partner today. I want you to find someone to pray with. And then we're going to allow the Holy Spirit to work in these last couple of minutes. And just in a few minutes, I'll dismiss. And and here's what's going to happen. Communion's open at the front and the back. As Beth leads us, if you want to take communion, you're free to take communion. I will not give further instructions. So when your heart's ready, eat the bread, drink the cup. And then if you know someone near you and you feel led to pray for them, would you allow the Holy Spirit to use you to pray for someone? Because he could be using you. Someone you know, someone that the Spirit's leading you. You could just put your hand on them, ask them if they need prayer, that God could use you today. God could use you today. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you in this place right now, responding to your word, responding to this message, responding to this hope. We commit this time to you. We ask that you would rule and reign.